Uh, we're on our way. Bob Hilario's right behind me. And, oh, yeah. Um, but we'll be there, I, I want to say, like 15 minutes, maybe. All right, cool. All right, cool. Um, but um, I know everybody's running late today. It's, like, ridiculous. I'm always running late, so I'm ahead of the trends, but... <laughs> but. Yeah, I was warned last night. You said 2.30, <laughs> and somebody else said, nah, she won't be here till 5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I beat you to it. <laughs> that my fucking wife is not there right now, either. So... There's that. Yeah, get out the plane. She was supposed to be coming, so she's, Well, I guess you know, we got here before you. She might have been right, but... <laughs> but, yeah. but um, guess, I, guess who's I, here, Sarah? Who's here? Who's there? Alvaro. I just, just stepped in the door. Hi, Alvaro. I <laughs> earlier, and I was like, I'm running behind. He's like, and he's like, I'm on the way. I'm like, okay. But, um, so, uh, we're, we're coming in hot, and, um... And yeah, I know Claudia's oh, gonna be yeah. there if she's not there already, with her lovely self. And um, and yeah, so I'm excited. And we were listening quiz to your um, to your music um, up until now when I called, and it's just impressive. One, excellent. I'm so glad I got to meet you last night, and so glad you're free to do the show today. So, but yeah, yeah. I will see you guys soon. And. Yeah. Have fun and shit, like we do. All right. Well, hurry up and get down here. Get your butt here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just getting there. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Sarah. All right. Um, so let's see. Who's who's here? (laughs) Alvaro. Hello, everybody. I'm Alvaro. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, so yeah. Um, let's let's keep going. So um, so when what uh, how many songs do you want to play? I have tons. So it's, you know, it's, <laughs> we were just it's, talking about this before we got on. Yeah, back, so. I mean, let's just start with one. Yeah, we'll just start one. We'll go from there. <laughs> yeah, let me um, let's, pack in. Let's uh, close the door and let's just get you and me in here, and then yeah. we'll get the people out. So um, while you guys are setting up, I will try to do something. Oh well, I don't know. Let's well, actually let's just talk to somebody else here. So um, who, who wants to uh, who has something fun to talk about? <laughs> nope, people are shaking their head. <laughs> Do you have a Sarah story? I'm a little heated up. Sarah story? Probably got tons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without her here, I wouldn't say. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't probably do Sarah stories without her here. Um, so, yeah, the, the other things we have planned for the show, or at least not, well, not this show, but future shows, we want to try to do some games and things. The old show had some games and things to do on occasion, but we haven't, um, uh, well, Sarah ha- usually has the one who grabs all that stuff and brings it here so um <laughs> we'll we'll do that when she arrives um and we have a guest book to sign and stuff like that uh, yeah. and oh also yeah we'll we'll go around for plugs again later but uh if you have any websites or patreons or whatever you want to plug <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um Let's see. I could also be. We should always plug the uh, station because the station is always needing money. But we had we had a we had a Patreon, not a Patreon, a gr- uh, GoFundMe recently for the station because for the summer drive mm-hmm. we uh, always need some cash flow. We had a a summer comedy event, and hey, we have more people coming. Um, and let's see. So, um, yeah, what was that? Good? What were we gonna do? Oh yes. Yeah, so, so what's coming on the show? So more games and more other things, and um, yeah, we have uh, more bands coming. Let me check my notes here again. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what's what's your Sarah story that you weren't going to tell? But just to give me the outline of what. It-
with us. We know you could've stayed home, just cried and cussed. Mail your guns go off if it's time to bust. Mail the tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into code. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy shit anymore. Sleep in the doorway, piss on the floor. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the Smells of corruption I manipulates To recreates This air To go around saga Gotta launder My karma Karma, 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 kar
and welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Thanks so much for listening in. Ah, today it's Friday, January 25th, 2019. Thanks again so much for listening in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in the Mission District of San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Oh, thanks so much for listening in. Apologize for a bit of a late start this morning. However, we're here. Start the show as per usual with music. Uh, we heard The Guillotine by The Coup, followed by Low Fidelity All-Stars with Battle Flag, which I hadn't heard in a very long time, and I heard it this morning, and I was like, oh yes, I, I remember these lyrics, and it seems apropos. <sighs> so we do have a, a good show for you all. I was able to prepare a little bit today, and uh, I hope uh, you all enjoy We'll be playing some music a little bit later. I'm going to get my thoughts. Uh, I'll get my thoughts together. And, yeah, we'll have a show. Yeah, I'm waking up, as you can tell. <sighs> later on in the show, we will be playing a about an hour-long... Um, it's the live stream from a panel that happened last week on actually January 17th from Iraq, which is the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. So they had an event, Resisting Imperialism, Voices from the Migrant Caravan, and they live-streamed it, and they've, they've also posted it online as well. So if you're on Facebook, you can like them. Again, that's AROC Arab Resource and Organizing Center. So they've uh, shared this video, and I'll be playing the audio from, from that a little bit later on the program today. So that'll be very informative and grateful to have this as a resource to share with all the listeners out there. I wanted to start off with a, I guess it's a positive news story. It's always hard to tell. Um, however, it's from The Advocate, and uh, CDC report nearly 2% of high schoolers are transgender. And as per usual, I think when folks do studies on folks, uh, people's gender identities and sexualities, I feel like it's oftentimes underrepresented because not everyone is in a place where they are either honest with themselves or feel comfortable to share who they are. And there are... And, it's you know everyone has a different timeline and folks come out at different times and that's totally cool so i feel like this number is is probably even a bit low however uh for folks like myself uh i was trans uh i guess i've been trans my entire life and it took me a, a long time to really i could admit it to myself but it took me a long time to admit it to others so for the fact that two percent of high schoolers um uh realize this and have the language for it and feel safe and comfortable enough to to share that i think that's incredible and also as a reminder we've been around since the beginning of time so a lot of it of course has to do with uh, with the homophobia and transphobia has to do with colonialism and western chauvinism and coming in and trying to create this bullshit idea of two genders which isn't even a real thing so a lot of it's kind of coming out coming out of that and uh, folks being who they are. Cool. I'm waking up. I said so. Okay, so this article came out uh, on Thursday, January 24th. And again, it's from The Advocate. You can find it at advocate.com. It was written by Daniel Reynolds. The Centers, the Centers for Disease Control has released a groundbreaking report on trans youth. Nearly 2% of high school students identify as transgender, according to a new report released by the Centers for Disease Control. The groundbreaking study released Thursday showed that trans youth exist in greater numbers than previously thought, probably by some people. A lot of us are like, hey, we're everywhere. All right, that's my comment. 
Uh, however, it has also highlighted the health risks that these students face, probably due to uh, transphobia, which means, you know, parents or guardians or people kind of kicking them out of the house or being bullied by classmates or teachers. Uh, let's see, what else is there? Oh, yeah, not getting not accessing medical care, having to not be able to use the bathroom. Okay. Around 27% of trans students feel unsafe going to school. 35% are bullied, and 35% have attempted suicide within the past year. Compared with their cisgender peers, trans young people were also more likely to report being victims of violence, struggle with substance abuse, and receive an HIV test. The findings are from the CDC's 2017 Youth Risk Behavior Study, which for the first time pulled for transgender identity in 19 sites. These sites... Oops. These sites included uh, 10 states, Colorado, Delaware, Hawaii, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Rhode Island, Vermont, Wisconsin, and nine school districts in, in major urban areas, Boston, Broward County, Cleveland, Detroit, District of Columbia, Los Angeles, New York City, San Diego, and San Francisco. The pilot question asks students, some people describe themselves as transgender when their sex at birth does not match the way, and, uh, okay, I'm, okay, it should be the sex that someone told them they were at birth. Okay, okay, when the sex, okay, all right, uh, when their sex at birth does not match the way they think or feel about their gender, are you transgender? Response options included A, no, I'm not transgender, <laughs> okay? Uh, B, yes, I am transgender. C, I am not sure if I am transgender. D, I do not know what this question is asking. <laughs> Overall, 1.8% of respondents selected B. Amit Paley, CEO of The Trevor Project, a nonprofit that provides resources to LGBTQ youth at risk for suicide, praised the inclusion of transgender youth in this important federal survey. By collecting data inclusive of gender identity, the, the report shows the very real health risks faced by transgender and gender nonconforming youth, Paley said in a statement. The CDC's findings highlight the need for even more policies to protect transgender and gender nonconforming youth, as well as additional support for LGBTQ affirming organizations like the Trevor Project. However, Paley stressed that this survey was still incomplete because it was limited to only 10 states and nine urban areas. He encouraged the CDC to expand its scope in future surveys in order to educate policymakers on the needs of this vulnerable community. Only by understanding who our youth are and how they identify can we craft policies to show every young person to thrive. Can we allow every young person to thrive, Paley said. The Trump administration has actively worked to undermine and erase transgender people on a federal level. One of the first actions of its education department, led by billionaire Betsy DeVos, puh, that's me, I'm not actually spitting, but I'm, because I don't want to spit on anything in the studio, but... I feel the need to spit when I mention this person's name, was to revoke Obama-era guidelines that urged public schools allow trans students use of facilities that align with their gender identities, an option to identify as LGBTQ was also removed from the 2020 U.S. Census. Moreover, the conservative majority Supreme Court announced a 5-4 to decision on Monday to lift injunctions on 45's 2017 ban on transgender service members. The ban raises many alarms, including whether the federal government will continue to recognize transgender people and the health care they require. And at the end of the article, they say if you are 
a trans or gender nonconforming person considering suicide, Trans Lifeline can be reached at 877-565-8860. LGBTQ youth ages 24 and younger can reach the Trevor Project Lifeline at 866-488-7386. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 can also be reached 24 hours a day by people of all ages and identities. So again, if you want to check out this article, it's at The Advocate. We've also shared it on our Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. All right. So, I yeah, I, I guess I have some comments on that. Ooh. I'm going through some of the other articles to read today. And uh, again, it's that feeling of, oh, I don't really want to get into this. However, uh, it's important to talk about. So I might be jumping all over all over the place today. Uh, sometimes I have segues that go in from one article to the next, and it's really seamless, and it works out really well. Uh, recurring themes are people in positions of power that fuck up and harm others. That seems to be a, an overarching theme. And we can talk a little bit about the coup, that the U.S.-backed coup is happening in Venezuela. There's been many folks talking about this, other folks not so much. And this is from mintpressnews.com. Uh, U.S. backs coup in oil-rich Venezuela. Right-wing opposition plans mass privatization and hyper-capitalism. The U.S. has effectively declared a coup in Venezuela. 45 recognized unelected right-wing opposition leader Juan Guaido as new president, in quotes, uh, who plans mass privatization and neoliberal capitalist policies. Puh. I don't usually spit, because it's, again... Yeah, I'm on the radio. You can't see what I'm doing. Uh, perhaps I'm moving along. I often sigh on the show. So, uh, sometimes I feel like a sigh doesn't quite do this justice. All right, this article came out on January 24th, 2019. It was written by Ben Norton. The United States has effectively declared a political coup d'etat in Venezuela from abroad. 45, I, I can't fucking say his name, announced on January 23rd that the U.S. recognizes the unelected illegitimate right-wing opposition leader Juan Guaido as the supposed new interim president of Venezuela's supposed new government. Venezuela's U.S.-backed opposition has pledged to carry out a mass privatization of state assets and to implement harsh neoliberal capitalist policies. The opposition-controlled legislature's declared in its transition plans that the centralized model of controls of the economy will be replaced by a model of freedom and market based on the right of each Venezuelan to work under the guarantees of property rights and freedom of enterprise. Fucking gross. They share tweets from 45 and dickhead vice president. The U.S. also has hinted at violence in Venezuela. During a background briefing after Trump's... Fuck, I said his name. Ugh. Okay, 45 declaration, uh, journalist Dan Cohen heard a U.S. official declare that if the government of actual president Nicolas uh, Maduro responds with any violence, they have no immediate future, they have no immediate livelihood, one way or another, they have their days counted. 45 administration officials added, when we say all options are on the table, all options are on the table, let's hope Maduro and his cronies can see the magnitude of the message. Ugh. And then the next part of the article, regions, right-wing countries join U.S. in recognizing coup. Canada's liberal government, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Brazil's new far-right leader, Jair uh, Bolsonaro, 
and the overtly pro-U.S. Organization of American States, I've never heard of them, OAS, and its Secretary General, uh, Luis Almagro, have joined Trump in endorsing this diplomatic coup in Venezuela. Likewise, the right-wing U.S.-allied countries in Latin America, including Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Ecuador, have joined 45 in anointing Guaido as leader. The region's few remaining leftist governments, Bolivia, Cuba, and Nicaragua, have continued recognizing Venezuela's legitimate government, as has Mexico's newly elected left-wing president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Bolivian President Evo Morales warned that the claws of imperialism again seek to fatally wound the democracy and self-determination of the peoples of South America, adding, no longer will we be the backyard of the U.S. And they share a tweet from WikiLeaks. Uh, the U.S. government, its right-wing allies, and an upscent corporate media have repeatedly referred to Venezuela's actual president, Nicolas Maduro, as an authoritarian dictator. What they have failed to mention is that Venezuela still has regular elections, but the U.S.-backed right-wing opposition, which is notoriously disunited and incompetent, has chosen to boycott these elections, preferring to call for foreign-backed military coups instead. One of the only elected officials in the U.S. who has spoken out against the coup is left-wing California Congressman Ro Khanna. Other progressive and anti-Trump U.S. politicians, including self-declared de- democratic socialists, have remained silent on 45's effective declaration of a coup in Latin America. Opposition Plans for Privatized Free Market Economy While supporters of regime change in Venezuela insist this this blatantly undemocratic move is necessary to defend democracy, make no mistake, the upheaval is clearly not motivated by resistance to authoritarianism. Venezuela, which has the world's largest oil reserves, I mean, that should be the... Duh... And has challenged the hegemony of the U.S. dollar has long been a target of U.S. aggression. In 2002, the United States supported a military coup that briefly ousted democratically elected President Hugo Chavez and replaced him with the right-wing oligarch Pedro Carmona. U.S. intervention, including crippling economic sanctions, has only continued since then. Elements of Venezuela's opposition have portrayed themselves to credulous foreign observers as social democratic, but their real intentions are very clear. The opposition-controlled legislature has demanded mass privatization of state assets and a return to a capitalist oligarch-controlled economic system built on property rights and freedom of enterprise. In 2017, the Venezuelan government declared the creation of the Constituent Assembly to rewrite the Constitution. Venezuela's opposition refused to recognize this body and boycotted the elections. The opposition instead remained in control of the National Assembly and decided to run it as a separate parallel legislature. The opposition-controlled National Assembly drafted a transition law that openly outlines what policies the opposition, led by Juan Guaido, could or would pursue in its illegitimate U.S.-recognized government in Venezuela. Analyst Jorge Martin explained what this means in an article published by Venezuela Analysis. The transition law, drafted by the Assembly National in contempt, is explicit about the central objectives of the coup in the political and economic field. Centralized controls, arbitrary measures of expropriation, and other similar measures will be abolished. 
For these purposes, the centralized model of controls of the economy will be replaced by a model of freedom and market based on the right of each Venezuelan to work under the government uh, under the guarantees of property rights and freedom of enterprise. In other words, the nationalized companies will be returned to their former private owners, including telecommunications, electrical, SIDOR, cement, etc., as will expropriated landed estates. It is noteworthy that there is a lot of talk of property and business rights, but no mention is made of workers' rights, which would certainly be abolished. It continues, public companies will be subject to a restructuring process that ensures their efficient and transparent management, including through public-private agreements. What this means in plain language is massive dismissal of workers from state companies and the entry of private capital into them a policy of looting which has already proved to be a disaster in all countries where it has been applied. The model of the opposition's new coup regime in Venezuela, backed by the U.S., Canada, and Brazil, is the reimposition of neoliberal capitalism and the recolonization of Latin America. Any bluster about restoring democracy is a mere pretense at this point. Ugh. All right, so you can find this article again at mintpressnews.com, and we've also shared it on our weekly review webpage, again, which you can find at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. It's time for a music break, and we're going to share some local music. I've played this album on the show many times. This is from the album Invalidations Volume 2 from Leroy Moore and Juba Kalamka. This is one of my favorite songs off the album. And this one is called Football Father Cripple Son. When the wolves come onto the field, you'll hear a roar that'll knock pine cones out of trees 50 miles away. Football father, football son, 
only a few times. Both of them being trying to find words. No mom to be the buffer. Kept on losing each other's numbers. Father day and birthdays. Passed by without a word. We are now strangers in playing here, pointing the finger at each other as we grow older. No one is big disturbing his adult home with feelings I could have and should have in his eyes. He was already gone. Broken hearts will take to the grave. Now is the year when football season begins. He wonders how many football sons have football fathers. This is not a game. And he hopes things have changed. Back to the weekly review. That was JKLM with football. Father Cripple Son. And again, you can find this if you go to jubakalamka.bandcamp.com. It's a great album. Again, that's J U B A K A L A M K A.bandcamp.com off the album Invalidations Volume 2. I'm having a bit of a slow morning. Maybe you can tell. So it looks like uh, the government's going to be. The shutdown is over, uh, for now at least, and it's been reported this morning. There's an article in Mother Jones as well that it looks like uh, 45 has agreed to a short-term spending bill that would temporarily reopen the government and end the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. So the announcement, which will fund the government until February 15th, which is interesting, uh, going to happen and it appears that there will be no funding for the wall which is great because uh, that's ridiculous and there shouldn't have been one in the first place and so many folks are congratulating nancy pelosi on that and i do have to say i'm not always the biggest fan of hers i still am i hold grudges for many things uh, some of her pro-war stances as well as the time she compared anti-fascists or said that there was both sides in terms of f- folks who were defending themselves against Nazis and she had somehow said that that was not okay. So wanting to hold people in positions of power accountable. And at the same time, I want to recognize that I'm glad that there's someone that was able to help out in some regard with what's going on. And also uh, that so many folks were 
planning strikes and planning to go on strikes. The flight attendants were as well. TSA agents were calling in sick. So a lot of it, I think, is also just due to the workers who have decided not to show up for work. I mean, after all, they're not getting paid. So it really, a lot of folks have been considering what would a general strike look like and could we do that? So suppose that's a step in the right direction. And of course, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about that. And, uh, and also what it would look like if we didn't need the government to, cause it's a lot of folks, it's a complicated issue. So, uh, the, I think the biggest issue with the shutdown is that the most vulnerable people were the ones who were being attacked. The folks who live paycheck to paycheck were not, able to pay rent folks even more folks were going to food banks than usual uh they're considering cutting down like the the food stamps were not going to be renewed after february so again it's when these things when they stop they really end up punishing folks as opposed to uh i don't know about the military forces that were going to venezuela or gas and oil companies so it's only certain folks who are really being hurt by this, although it's the majority of people. All right. Uh, yeah, just groggy this morning. So when I'm groggy and I don't have all of my words together, uh, I really do also like to share other voices, the main thing to do on the show. So as I mentioned earlier, there was an event that happened last week and i am going to bring that up right now you can find it if you go to facebook uh, if you go to facebook.com forward slash a rock bay area and that's a-r-o-c bay area and this is about an hour and i hope i'll be more awake my apologies uh after this video and perhaps we'll take a break in between play some music get to some other news as well or perhaps we'll do it at the end of the program also while I'm here scrolling down, there's an emergency rally today in San Francisco at 24th and Mission at 5 p.m. at Hands Off Venezuela. Emergency rally, respect Venezuelan sovereignty. So if you're in the area, please do check that out. Again, there's an emergency rally happening today, Friday, January 25th, 5 p.m., Hands Off Venezuela, 24th and Mission. Not too far from the station. So we're going to get to this event here and folks from iraq also spoke at the women's march on the 20 that was like on the 20th i believe and yeah so this is here is the event and we'll be back in a bit thanks for listening thank you so much for being here um for those if you need a seat and someone can give up their seat please raise your hand anyone need a seat Okay, well, we hope that we can self-organize tonight and make sure we're supporting all the folks to, who need seating to have seating. There's some more standing room in the back over there. There's also some more standing room here. And there's some standing and sitting room right here. We are glad that it's a full house and we're glad that so many people are here to learn about these awesome organizations and great work taking place at the border and around the world. 
Um, my name is Lara Kiswani, and I am with the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, otherwise known as AROC. We want to welcome you all to an event about border militarization, border imperialism, and struggles in Honduras, in Yemen, in Mexico, in Palestine, and in El Salvador, and Haiti. How many of y'all are here for that? Um, so, um, we're, I'm going to introduce the speakers, and before, so I just kind of want to give some background on why we're here. So how many of you have heard about the migrant caravan at the U.S.-Mexico border? Um, it's gotten a lot of media attention and people are quite concerned and caring um, to support the folks in the struggle that's taking place at the border. And we've been in conversations with many of you, with many of our friends here on this panel, specifically with Carlos, who's been doing work at the border on a regular basis. Um, about what is it that we can do as an Arab organization committed to liberation of all people and committed to solidarity and internationalism. And one specific thing was material support. So you'll learn today about ways in which we're raising funds for organizations doing work on the ground as well as organizations doing work here to support work on the ground. But also there was a need and sort of an interest to raise some more consciousness about the international, international character of what's taking place at the border and understanding it as not isolated from broader border militarization, and understanding it truly as a struggle against US imperialism. How many of you guys are anti-imperialists in this audience? So we wanted to move away from the conversation that it's just this is a refugee crisis, or an immigrant crisis, and understanding that it's actually quite a logical outcome of US foreign policy. Mm -hmm. right. um, and how are these policies impacting the political economies of the countries that have these people forced to leave in the first place, right? And what is the relationship between our, this United States government and the governments of the countries that people are fleeing? And where is and what is the presence of military equipment um, and military resources in those countries? And what is the militarized response look like to the, to the resistance on the ground in those countries? All of those questions leading us to understand a broader sort of analysis of the imperialist framework that really brings us to this conversation. And how is it that US imperialism is impeding on our ability to fight for our freedoms to stay and our freedoms to move and return? So as AROC, we understand this quite well as an Arab organization, understanding forced migration from Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Palestine as direct results of US imperialism and the settler colonial state of Israel, occupations, wars, and proxy wars, and their subsequent destabilization of our region. Close to 70 years ago, um, or over 70 years ago, um, the state of Israel was created on historic Palestine. And last year, there was a great march of return in Gaza, folks who were internally displaced, um, practicing the right of return to occupied Palestine, and were met with Israeli military. Um, an Israeli military force not too different than what we saw in the images at the border in US and Mexico this last year. And understanding that apartheid Israel and Zionism provides us with a very much needed window in understanding policing, repression, and militarization globally. 
Palestine is in fact used as a laboratory to experiment with weaponry, surveillance, and crowd control technologies that are then exported and used right here in the United States as well as across the world and right now at the U.S.-Mexico border. The, the Israeli company Elbit is now contracted by CBP to install technology-based surveillance system that will work 24 hours a day, a combination of towers, sensors, radars, cameras, and communications at the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. arms makers are bidding to make the Trump administration's long-awaited U.S.-Mexico wall. The same companies that have built up militarized barriers and walls between Egypt and Jordan and Palestine and within Palestine itself have now contracts in Kenya, Somalia, and other African countries. Yeah, so we can do that. <laughs> uh, so the picture here that was being painted is one of U.S. imperialism using its, using its very close partner, Israel, to further economic exploitation and repression globally. Both the U.S. and Israel, we know, have long histories of destabilizing regions in, in the African continent, in Asia, in Asia Pacific, as well as Latin America. And historically, our people across the globe have made their work much more difficult due to popular resistance. And what we're seeing today at the U.S.-Mexico border, what we're seeing with the migrant caravan, is an indication of that popular resistance. It's an illustration of that. What we're seeing with the Great March of Return in Palestine is also an illustration of that popular resistance. And today, there's a growing movement to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, an effort that would isolate Israel politically, economically, and culturally. And we believe that when we isolate Israel, we are in fact making a dent to U.S. imperialism, a task that we must all take up as a global community fighting against racism and fascism and economic exploitation. BDS has become a primary battlefield for progressive movements right now in the United States in this political moment. There are legislative efforts attempting to criminalize BDS. There is a growing backlash led by Zionist institutions like the ADLs, the JCRCs, and the Jewish Federations to attack communities of color who express any solidarity with Palestine. Um, and as we engage in tonight's discussion, we don't want to only um, really delve deep into the violence of border imperialism. We also want to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves to think about ways that we can support and continue to contribute to our collective liberation um, from Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Haiti, to Yemen, to Palestine, through efforts like BDS, but not only through efforts like BDS, but to work together to challenge U.S. imperialism and put that solidarity into practice. So in that regard and in that spirit, I want to talk about how we're putting that solidarity into practice today. You will see on the left here, there's an auction, and you'll recognize this beautiful artwork by Dignidad Rebelde, which has been donated to us. There's an auction for this original prints um, so that you can actually donate to three organizations doing work on the ground in, at the border as well as here in the United States. Um, we're, don't, we're raising funds today for Pueblo Sin Fronteras, the organization that Veronica represents. We're raising funds today for Otro Lado and Enclave Caracol. Um, Enclave Caracol is an autonomous project in Tijuana and it organizes material support for the caravan and coordinates with Otro Lado, an NGO that provides free legal support for asylum seekers and coordinates efforts on the ground. So we will be asking you to chip in some more money later on in the evening. Do what you can to give. This is one act of solidarity and our speakers will also share with you other ways that you can support the struggles on the ground. 
Um, so before I introduce the speakers, I want to just make one more announcement if people can try to move in as much as you can, if there's any room next to you to kind of squeeze in some more of our um, awesome participants today. You guys ready for the panel? Yeah. You're, yeah? I, mean, I have a question. I don't know if there's anybody from English to Spanish uh, in, in the audience, in thoughts. Is anyone in need of translate? That wouldn't work for me to say in English. I am a person who needs interpretation in English. Hay alguna persona que necesita interpretación del inglés al español aquí? No? Thank you for that generous offer. Um, so our first speaker is Carlos Martinez. He's a PhD. Yeah, give it up for Carlos. Berkeley and UC San Francisco. His current work examines the intersecting logics of containment, carceral violence, anti-immigrant policies, both Mexican deportees and Central American asylum seekers in rapidly changing Tijuana along with emerging forms of mutual aid and solidarity seeking to resist these forces. Carlos recently returned from Tijuana after close cons consultation with organizations providing legal and medical support for migrants and asylum seekers. Our next speaker will be Veronica Aguilar. Um, she's a native of El Salvador. <laughs> Veronica immigrated to the United States via a caravan in 2017 and currently has an asylum case pending in the U.S. immigration courts. She serves on the international coordinating body for Puerto Sin Fronteras, an organization which provides political, logistical, and legal support for the caravan on their journeys north. Her 18-year-old son uh, participated in the most recent caravan and is currently imprisoned by Mexican authorities. Next, we have Chris Lopez. Um, give it up for Chris. right here in the Bay Area. Uh, he's currently in the East Bay um, Oakland Court. He is the cur currently the East Bay Oakland Coordinator for School of America's Watch. How many of you have heard of School of America's Watch? Um, and also organizing with La Voz a las Trabajadoras. I'm going to practice my Spanish next time I hear <laughs> um, And then we have Ashwak. Ashwak. Give it up for Ashwak. Ashwak is a PhD candidate also with her fellow PhD candidate with some academics Woo! in the room. A PhD candidate in medical anthropology at UC Berkeley and UCSF. Her work focuses on the demands on medicine and medical personnel in the Arab world with particular focus on Yemen and the role of the United States in Saudi Arabia. Ashwak is a former leader of AROC and she has been volunteering at the US-Mexico border to support with legal and medical clinics. And last but not least, we have our wonderful Pierre, who is not here yet because he's stuck in traffic trying to get his way here. Um, so Pierre is a founding member of the Haiti Action Committee, uh, based in the Bay Area. He, yes, give it up for Haiti Action and Pierre. Pierre was born in Haiti, moved to New York in 1970, um, and later to Oakland. He's been part of mobilization activities against a series of U.S.-imposed Haitian dictators. Um, and he, in New York, he was active in community-based movements to implement bilingual cultural education. He worked oh, as a there volunteer. He there he is. <laughs> Very grand en entrance here. <laughs> so 
teacher at, at an after-school tutorial program for immigrant high school students and also taught ESL to adults in Haiti um, at a Haitian community center. Please welcome all our awesome panelists. starting from right to left. Um, and there'll be interpretation for, um, by Sandy. Thank you, Sandy, for being here as an interpreter for Veronica. So we're gonna go ahead and get started with Carlos. Thank you, Lara. Um, thank you all for being here tonight. This is an incredible show of solidarity, I think. Um, let's hear it for A-Rock. One more time. Yeah. So how many folks here have actually gone to Tijuana recently to support, not to party, to actually just support? <laughs> All right, so we got a bunch of folks. And how many folks are thinking about going down here? Hands up. All right, right on. So, you know, be in touch with us or, you know, feel free to connect with us after this event. Um, and uh, let's see, what other questions? How many people hate Trump here? <laughs> right, not a steal hands up. So I'm going to try to keep my part kind of um, short, given we have a lot of panelists here. Um, and um, I, so as Lara was saying, I recently just got back uh, from Tijuana as did Ashwat. Um, and so she'll also have some things to share um, from you know our recent trip down there. Um, I primarily uh, was focused on uh, trying to organize medical support uh, for asylum seekers. Um, in Tijuana, uh, but also continuing to work with um, folks who are, have been organizing for several years actually to provide medical uh, support for the um, population of folks who have been deported from the United States, right? Which is um, a significant population in Tijuana and is unfortunately ever-growing population, right? Um, so I think something just to start off that needs to be made just really clear um, is that, you know, we hear about this idea of a crisis at the border, um, you know, first of all, this is a crisis that um, is is a human crisis in, in the sense that it's, it's it's a very real, you know, human situation. It's not a political crisis in the way that uh, the current administration is making it out to be, um, and it's a crisis that's completely manufactured by this administration, right? And and not just this administration, but also by prior administrations. Right, so um, of course Trump is not solely responsible for the current situation that we're seeing at the border. We have to acknowledge that, um, and and you know by that uh, what I mean is that um, that everything about this um, current crisis, from the very reason why people are fleeing, um, primarily from Honduras but also from other countries in Central America right now. Um, to the way that they're actually fleeing um, together in large groups as caravans, and to the very fact that um, of, of their having to uh, stay in Tijuana as a sort of militarized waiting room that it's become, everything about that has to do with U.S. foreign policy, right? And um, I'm not going to talk uh, much about the why they're fleeing, because um, I think Chris will provide you with a lot of that context, other than, than to say, um, that the majority, the vast majority of folks who have arrived with this uh, most recent caravan are coming from Honduras. Um, and if folks are not aware that there's, you know, this is very likely, this is first of all not the first caravan, right? And it is also very likely and absolutely not actually going to be the last caravan. There's already another caravan um, or set of caravans being organized as we speak. 
um, that should be reaching Mexico and you know possibly Tijuana the next uh, several months. Um, so, uh, you know, what I can say from interacting with uh, people who have traveled with the caravan is uh, that people are, are, are fleeing incredible and really unbelievable uh, violence, right? I mean, and, you know, people will share stories with you that, and when I say unbelievable, I don't mean that, that they, they can't be believed, right? Because they're, <laughs> I mean, the way that people will share stories with you is like, as if, like, you know, it, it, everybody has a story to share that they will tell you um, very naturally, right? Um, and of awful forms of violence, of um, being targeted by, um, whether it's um, drug cartel groups in Honduras, um, or by actual direct direct police and military violence. Um, but, you know, as people know very well, um, leaving these situations, all of those groups are, are intimately connected with each other, right? Um, and this is, um, you know, a, a byproduct again of U.S. policy and of and of, uh, and of incredible impunity that has been implemented in Honduras, um, which has created a state, which has created what I mean. I think we need to just acknowledge is really a, a dictatorship in Honduras, right? And unfortunately, kind of the narrative around the caravans has completely erased that that history and that current ongoing reality that people are fleeing right now, right? So um, people are being called just migrants, but really they are people who are seeking asylum, right? Um, and then, you know, the reason that people are, 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 are coming together in caravans um, is because, again, of US foreign policy, which has made it far more difficult, far more challenging um, for people to travel, to make it to the border, uh, of Mexico to even ask for asylum um, because um, for, since at least 2011 there's been an incredible amount of U.S. funding which has um, made migration through Mexico much more daunting um, through um, the funding of military forces, police and security forces, which again are all connected and it's very well known that they're all very connected and intimately tied to drug cartel groups all throughout which inflict violence upon migrants when they're traveling in small groups or as individuals. Um, and, and when people are um, you know, traveling in small groups, they're also potentially more vulnerable toward, to deportation. So traveling in caravans in large groups actually provides a form of protection for people, right? Against um, these kinds of state policies, but also um, against the, kind of the groups that are, um, that are making uh, migrants more vulnerable. Um, and then finally, you know, in, in terms of the, the situation currently in Tijuana and the, and the fact that there's so many people that are, are stuck and, and are basically stranded in Tijuana, um, something that needs to be made very clear is that the Trump administration has um, pursued uh, several policies and has now been, been making several attempts to slow down, if not to completely halt the asylum process, right? So there are several uh, lawsuits currently against the, the Trump administration, some of which, uh, one of which is being brought against uh, them by El Otro Lado, which was mentioned earlier. Um, so, um, you know, of course, this administration does not want to allow asylum seekers to enter the country, and they're doing everything they can to prevent that. Um, and what's also very clear, um, and, you know, we saw this ourselves, for people who have been in Tijuana, they've, they've seen this, um, there's, 
been um, this process which has been referred to as metering, which has been created by the Trump administration, which has basically slowed down the asylum process by forcing people to get onto this illegitimate list um, in order to be uh, brought in by the, uh, a Mexican sort of, uh, sort of border kind of control group um, called Grupos Beta to be brought over to the U.S. to have their asylum process, right? So this list is, is really odd and it's um, managed purportedly by asylum seekers themselves but, um, you know, for people who have seen it, we, you know, we can tell you that it's, you know, being done in a really ad hoc kind of way, which um, is vulnerable to all kinds of, you know, um, illegitimate sort of, uh, in, in sort of informal um, kind of uh, just, uh, I guess, cheating of the process. So people are being placed on this list um, but it's, it, you know, which takes at least three to four to weeks. Currently, they're saying it takes two months to even be called in for asylum. But there's been all sorts of strange uh, occurrences and uh, conflicts that emerge around the list constantly. And so there's lawyers that are constantly observing this process to try to understand what's going on on a daily basis. Um, so anyways, the point is, is that this is very, uh, this, this process of, of creating this this list, which I'm not saying it was created by the U.S., but it, in some ways it was at least created by, in a response to um, Border Patrol um, and their kind of creating of a, of a metering process, which takes in less asylum seekers all the time. Um, they, um, this has created a, a waiting room kind of situation in Tijuana where people are being forced at, at their, you know, um, that, you know, which makes them more vulnerable, right, to being Tijuana, because these are people who are being pursued in some cases by criminal networks. Um, so this is actually putting people in very serious um, danger. Um, so I think with that, I want to try to cut it short. I know I have a couple minutes left, but um, I guess the final thing I'll say is that um, people are are, are still in Tijuana waiting to be, you know, waiting to be processed on this list in many cases. Some, in some cases, they're deciding to stay in Mexico. Um, and there's shelters that have been provided, right? Um, but for short, relatively short periods of time where, you know, it's sort of a, a media spectacle. So we're, we're taking care of the asylum seekers, um, is, you know, sort of the message that's being put out. But um, one of the main shelters where people were staying at was already closed down. And the last kind of large shelter where at least 500 people are currently still staying at is expected to be shut down in the next week or so. And without a real, um, and, you know, people, the, the government has been questioned about where these people are expected to go, and there's been no real forthcoming answers around that. So we're expecting to see quite a bit of, um, you know, potential repression and also of arbitrary deportation, which has been an ongoing thing that's also been happening um, to asylum seekers while they're staying in Tijuana. Um, so, um, you know, that being said, you know, keep, keep your eyes, you know, open, keep, you know, trying to find information and, you know, stay in touch about things that are happening as um, people are continuously being um, mistreated um, and, you know, deported and all those things in Tijuana. Um, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Thank you.
Tengan todos muy buenas noches. Mi nombre es Verónica Aguilar, soy salvadoreña y vine en una caravana el año pasado en noviembre. Good evening, everyone. My name is Verónica López. I am from El Salvador and I came on a caravan last year in November. Uh, seré honesta. Estoy un poco nerviosa por primera vez porque realmente me he confundido con la política y la esta cosa porque no entiendo nada sobre eso solamente les voy a contar sobre lo que yo viví y lo que estoy haciendo to be honest I am quite nervous tonight um, it's hard for me to understand about the militarization so I'm going to talk more about my personal experience and what I lived what I went through eh, el año pasado yo me tocó que salir de mi país por problemas de pandillas ya que Centroamérica está, está dividido, dirigido por pandillas, donde el gobierno ni nadie puede hacer nada y hay que salir cuando hay algún problema con ellos o te, quiere, o te matan. So, I left my country because of a problem with gangs. Um, the country is divided up as such where uh, gangs or, you know, uh, is in control of different uh, zones and areas, and when they ask you to leave, either have to leave or they kill you. Salí sin pensar ni saber realmente qué iba a hacer. Lo único que yo sabía era que iba a llegar a México. Tampoco sabía qué iba a hacer. Salí con 100 dólares de Salvador. Llegué con 10 pesos hasta México, y allí empecé a oír sobre la caravana. So I left without really knowing, uh, without really knowing that I was leaving or where I was going to um, end up. But I knew that I was going to go to Mexico. I arrived with only 10 pesos in Mexico, and I knew uh, that's when I started hearing about the caravan. En ese momento, yo no sabía realmente qué era o qué hacían o qué era real o hasta dónde iban a llegar o qué era. Pero yo pensé que era mi única opción. Y decidí unirme a ellos. At that moment, I didn't know um, too well what the caravan was, how far they were going to be able to get, but or what they really were going to be able to do. But I decided to join them. La caravana es un grupo de personas que se unen para cuidarse, para protegerse, para caminar seguros en todo lo que es México hasta Estados Unidos o las fronteras. So the caravan is a group of people that walk together, united, to protect each other, to help each other, to get from one border of Central America and get up through Mexico to get to the next border. La caravana no es organizada por ninguna organización, ni por ningún gobierno, ni por nadie. Simplemente la gente ya está cansada de la violencia, de la pobreza, de la, de la discriminación y la gente está diciendo ya no y están saliendo dejando lo que tienen o lo que no tienen para tener una mejor vida. So the caravan isn't directly organized by a specific organization or any country. It's simply people, people that are saying uh, enough. I'm tired. We need to leave and they're uniting together. Yo ingresé el 12 de noviembre a Estados Unidos. Vine a pedir asilo. Estuve detenida siete meses. 
fueron muy difíciles, pero gracias a Dios estoy acá. Y a causa de lo que yo conozco ahora, que es un poco de política que no entiendo mucho, pero sí conozco, estoy eh, trabajando con Pueblos Sin Fronteras para tratar de seguir apoyando a mi familia. So, I came in on November 12th and I was held in detention for seven months. Um, uh, for me, I'm still learning and don't understand too much yet about the politics of all of this, but I'm very glad that I am now working in Pueblos Sin Fronteras and the main reason is so that I can support my family. Para mí, mi familia no es mi familia de sangre, sino que para mí somos todos. Para mí no somos inmigrantes, somos una familia, somos un pueblo que estamos cansados de la, de, de la represión, que solo queremos vivir y tener una mejor oportunidad, dar algo mejor a nuestros hijos. So for me, when I say my family, it's not just my blood family, it's my people, it's my community, it's a group of people that are tired, they're tired of the situation and want to do something about it. Para mí no hay hondureños, no hay salvadoreños, no hay mexicanos, no hay nada. Para mí todos somos iguales, ni el color, ni el idioma, ni nada. Todos somos iguales y todos luchamos por un mismo sueño, por vivir tranquilos, por ser felices, por dar mayor oportunidad a nuestros hijos. And for me, there's really um, no difference between Honduran, Mexican, Salvadoran. We're each trying to help our families go along and to support our children. There's no difference in who we are. Yo salí el 15 de junio de, del año pasado. Eh, tengo dos hijos, una nena de 19 años y un niño de 15. So I was released on June, June 15th last year. I have two children, a 19-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter. Mi hijo de 15 años estaba siendo amenazado por pandillas que fuera parte de ellos o que me lo iban a matar. Sorry, correction. 15-year-old son. So my son was being threatened. Um, he was being threatened that they were going to, uh, we were being threatened that he was going to get killed. Fue un momento muy difícil para mí porque mis posibilidades económicas eran muy pequeñas, no sabía realmente qué hacer. Cuando en ese mismo momento sale la caravana de Honduras. So it was a very a difficult moment for me, both economically and because I didn't know what to do at that time. I knew that there was a caravan that was leaving. Entonces hablo con mi madre y de la noche a la mañana mi madre se une a la caravana con mi hijo. So I spoke to my mother and from one day to the next um, my mother joined the caravan along with my son. Lo hice de esa manera porque era algo urgente, pero también yo sabía que las caravanas son un apoyo, que hay organizaciones que velan por los derechos de los migrantes que era más seguro que viajar allí. So, um, the reason that we decided to 
we decided to have them join that caravan was because we knew that that was a more safe way for him to get here. Con muchas dificultades, muchas preocupaciones, mi hijo logró llegar a Tijuana. Eh, mi mamá para mí es mi superhéroe porque ella solo lo trajo, ella no cruzó. It was um, very, a very worrisome moment for me. We know that there was many difficult uh, difficulties along the way, and my mother for me during this time was my superhero because she accompanied him all the way over. Mi hijo, la primera vez que intentaron con al otro lado, la organización de abogados, intentaron cruzar para pedir asilo, fueron detenidos dos niños, entre ellos mi hijo. Fueron momentos muy difíciles, pero gracias a Dios después de algunos días dieron los niños de nuevo a, al otro lado. So, initially, um, the organization al otro lado tried to help a few children um, cross to ask for asylum, and Two of them were detained. One of those children was my son, but luckily, after some time, they were able to release them. Días después, eh, llega una senadora Tijuana, y ella ayuda a los niños a que el, los de AI hagan su trabajo, porque lo que está pasando en Tijuana es que cuando los niños no acompañados van a pedir asilo, son agarrados por México y llevados al DIF en vez de que ellos crucen y puedan ejercer un derecho que ellos tienen. So, um, after the situation, there was a senator there that helped because what's happening in Tijuana and at the border is that when there are accompanied, unaccompanied minors, then the, they are handed over to the state, you know, they're handed over to DIF, and then they don't know what to do. Así mi hijo logró pasar. Hace ya más de un mes, se encuentra detenido en Florida, en un albergue de, mejo, de menores, donde he metido todo el papeleo que me han pedido, pero hasta ahora aún no me lo han dado. Espero me lo den pronto. Estoy en contra de toda la, la de la forma que trabaja este gobierno. Estoy en contra de la separación que hacen porque aunque ya está grande un niño de 15 años, pero es un niño aún, es un menor que debe de estar con sus padres. En ese lugar dice mi hijo que hay demasiados niños, niños que tienen 4 o 5 meses y me pongo a pensar, ¿por qué tanto tiempo? ¿Por qué no hacen su trabajo? No entiendo, pero no creo que debemos de hacer algo para que todo eso termine. So, uh, since that time, my son has been in detention. He is being held in detention in Florida. I've tried to comply with giving, you know, all the paperwork and all the things that are being required of me, uh, but he still hasn't been given to me. I hope that he is returned to me soon. And I am against um, the way that the government is doing this. Um, I'm against all the work that's being done to separate the families. My son tells me that there's a lot of children in these shelters, and there's some children that have been there for months, four or five months, and I don't understand why they're there for so long. They need to do their job and return their children to their families. 
es, es difícil, son sentimientos encontrados. Pero primeramente tengo fe que mi hijo va a estar pronto conmigo y no voy a parar de luchar. No voy a parar de luchar por mis derechos y de mis hermanos. Porque somos un pueblo, porque somos un pueblo sin fronteras. Creo que acá en este lugar no todos somos de un mismo país. Creo que aquí vemos de diferentes países y estamos unidos por una misma causa. Somos un pueblo sin fronteras. I hope to be with my son soon, um, and I hope to continue in this struggle and keep on fighting and recognize that there's a lot of us and that we are uh, people without any borders, and together we're a people united, again, people without borders. de las detenciones de personas que están detenidas, porque créanme que para nosotros tener un teléfono es nuestro mundo para muchos. La gente que está detenida no tiene acceso a eso. Y cuando ellos logran hablar con alguien, para ellos es como, como la claridad en un momento de oscuridad. So very quickly, I just want to talk a little bit about the work that I'm doing. I'm a person that helps connect phone calls to people in detention. And sometimes just having a simple phone call is your entire world. Um, when you're in these places, you really have no access. So sometimes when you're able to talk to people, it's really giving the person a moment of clarity among all the darkness. También estamos trabajando en hablar con personas ciudadanas americanas que puedan recibir a personas que se encuentran detenidas, ya que es muy importante tener un... Sí, ya no sé ni cómo se dice en español, o sea. <risa> Patrocinadores, porque eso puede ser la liberación de alguien que se encuentra detenido. Muchas personas son deportadas por el hecho que no tienen familia, no tienen a nadie acá. Y creo que muchos de ustedes pueden dar la oportunidad para que alguien pueda salir de la detención. Y también estamos organizando dinero. So, some of the work that we also do is that we are trying to connect people with uh, U.S. citizens to act as their sponsor. Sometimes just having that sponsor really means the ability for people to get out and really their freedom. Sometimes without that sponsor, people are deported, and especially if they don't have that support. And of course, a lot of the work that we're doing is also fundraising. Es un trabajo difícil, pero todos podemos aportar si queremos. No es necesario tener millones, ni aportar millones, ni tampoco recibir a todos los detenidos, solamente uno. Y tendrá la la oportunidad de conocer y apoyar a alguien para que cambie su vida. So, I know that it is something that's very difficult, but we don't need to support every single person. You know, we don't need to give millions of dollars. Just giving some and also helping at least one person that's detained will make quite a difference. Uh, mi tiempo terminó. 
Podría hablar mucho más, pero ya no puedo. Eh, espero su apoyo y que sigamos siempre en la lucha. Jay will direct you um, where to go, because I don't really know where you're going to go, but apparently he thinks there's a way to move that way. Because um, there's a lot of folks outside, we just want to try to squeeze in as many as we can as we continue the program. Hey everybody, you are listening to the Weekly Review on Mutiny Radio, taking a bit of a break. And right now we're listening to a video that was posted by Iraq, which is the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. And this uh, event happened last week. So we will, we will be uh, playing more of it. It's about another um, half hour. <sighs> Wanted to have a bit of a break in between. We also have a few more news stories. And since I unfortunately was able to start the show a little bit late today, have, there's definitely a lot more to get to I wanted to mention. And so I think I'll, I'll save it for after we finish the, the segment as not to disrupt very much. So we will continue. And again, if you want to see this video, please check out or like AROC, the Arab Resource and Organizing Center at AROC Bay Area. You can find them on Facebook as well as Twitter. Buenas tardes. Um, thank you all for being here. My name is Chris Lopez. I'm the coordinator for the East Bay chapter for School of Americas, and I'm here with also La Voz de los Trabajadores. Um, you can ask me about those organizations after the talk. I have the privilege of speaking a little bit on behalf of Honduras. I want to clarify, uh, my father is an immigrant from Honduras. I haven't had the opportunity to go to Honduras yet for uh, personal reasons, but I will be going this year for the first time. Wow. And I was at the caravan only for a day and a half, but we'll give a little bit of detail on that. Um, what I want to do here is just kind of give priority to what's happening in Honduras, what's not being said in the mainstream media. We know that Honduras is a corrupt country. Uh, it's a debate whether Honduras can be considered a failed state. But what are some examples of this corruption, of this repression that's forcing these people to flee Honduras? Their only home um, in search of the United States was isn't an easy route. Um, Honduras, a Central American country, right next to El Salvador, Guatemala, for a long time was just this etc. country because it didn't have an official civil war during the 80s when a lot of Salvadorans and Guatemalans and Nicaraguenses were being um, forced to leave their countries during the time. And Honduras was kind of this country, now okay, we, we don't have a civil war, but what Ronald Reagan actually did to this country is transform it into a military base of experiments. Honduras has been a geopolitical asset for this Washington consensus, this imperialist agenda that Washington tries to promote in the region. As many of us know, we learned here in the United States about the Monroe Doctrine. That's the epitome, uh, that's the focal point for US imperialism in Latin America. And the way in which they've treated Honduras has been this kind of unofficially annexed province where we need some counterinsurgency trainings for different armies, right-wing armies in Latin America, let's train them in Honduras. We need to dispose of a president in Guatemala, democratically elected president, let him march through Honduran land. And um, the United States here, you know, I think it's our job to educate what role this government has had in the region. 
1903, it had its first military invasion. 1911, it was supporting this overthrow of a president, democratically a president, uh, Davila, that was really trying to protect the multinational interests of Standard Fruit Company, as many of us know, have controlled and continues to control Central America to this day. Uh, 1954, there was a huge worker strike. 50,000 um, workers organized to really challenge the way the U.S. was prioritizing and ensuring that the multinational corporations of its country in Honduras would have um, the priority over um, Honduran people and their rights and their labor on labors. Um, I think what I, what we hear most recently as well is what happened in June 28, 2009. Uh, one of the most recent military coups that's occurred in the Americas, Haiti, Honduras, Paraguay, Brazil, um, all had different sorts of coups. Uh, Honduras had a military coup, and I think many of us are very familiar with how that point really destabilized the country and set it up for the condition of the current state. Um, as many of you know, um, the democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, was overthrown. Five in the morning, was shipped out of the country in an airplane in his pajamas, and what was installed was this post coup regime because this president was identifying with kind of the leftist government at the moment. What was installed um, was the National Party, uh, the regime that's continued to power, that, that continues to be in power. And if we start to study migrant patterns, if we start in 2009, we see a dramatic increase. In those 10, almost 10, 10 years that the National Party has been in power, Let's look at the rates of violence that have increased. Let's also look at the amount of military investment that's been increased over those years in Honduras that has one of the largest U.S. military bases in Pamerola, the Sotocano Air Base. Um, and I think when we think about the caravan, we really have to think about, you know, what's the, where are the roots of U.S. imperialism present here? Last November, uh, the end of 2017, um, there was another political crisis in the country where an election was stolen. Um, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who had been elected in 2013, the president who was in power was failing the Honduran people, um, managed to change the Constitution. 1982 Constitution states that re-election is illegal. It's unconstitutional. He installed some Supreme Court judge judges. This was changed. It was set. And with 70% of the votes counted at that time, November 26, one of the members of the Electoral Tribunal has said it's, it's Salvador Nazaraya, the president of opposition, had an irreversible victory. Next thing you know, for 10 hours, the system crashed. The electoral system crashed. And many of us, Mexico is familiar with this in 1988. How many in Latin America, it's, it's not an unfamiliar pattern where electoral um, sabotage is tolerated, one, by US foreign diplomacy, and also by national elites that have control of Honduras. And, what we see here, you know, with the caravans is, um, I know Vero came on one earlier before November 2017, but there's also some that left in January and also in December. And in these caravans, we've been seeing political refugees, folks seeking asylum because they're being prosecuted for taking to the streets and challenging the legitimacy of this government. Two, they're protesting the hyper-militarization of the Honduran streets, where it's slowly, slowly decreasing the homicide rate, but how many deaths are actually being reported by the Honduran police at this time? How honest are they being with these numbers where we have international organizations having higher numbers than those reported by the government? Where we have uh, police and gang collusion 
that's a reality in many of the Spolonians where folks have no other option than to leave their country and be forced to leave, um, such as the case that Vero gave from El Salvador. Um, and most recently, it's um, the way we can see Honduras is one in which a 10-year government has failed to provide and improve these conditions for the Hondurans not to leave. Um, this past caravan that kind of garnered our attention on the international media left October 12th. On October 11th, there is a second conference of the Alliance for Prosperity, um, this kind of military development, bilateral, well, not by the multilateral relationship the United States with Central America. And that day before Juan Orlando Hernandez, the dictator of Honduras, said, we have improved, uh, our economy has improved to such that there should be no reason for why Honduras should be fleeing their country. How is it by the next day, October 12th at 6 p.m., there's already a thousand people that have left in Honduras. A week after that, there's over 3,000 of them in Guatemala. And two weeks after that, there's over 10,000 of them that have crossed into Mexico. This president had the audacity to tell the United Nations that his country produces no such impoverishing conditions that force these people to flee Honduras. This is a discourse that is dominating and that's, being, that's overshadowing, right? Um, a lot of the suffrage that we're seeing at the border. So it's, I'm really happy that so many independent media organizations and a lot of other organizations are prioritizing the voices of, that we're seeing at the caravan. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the response about the, what the Honduran government has been doing. It's just been criminalization. Uh, a week after the one that left October 12, the Honduran police were starting to circle departments, preventing people from leaving their own departments so they wouldn't reach the Guatemala-Honduran border. Uh, two days ago, because there was one that recently left on January 15th, the Office of the Presidency made a communication referencing a code, an article in the penal code, saying that Honduran fathers and mothers attempt to leave the country without any proof of return with a child in between the ages of one and three will face one and three jail, one and three years in jail. What kind of resolution is that for the folks that have no other option than to, to flee their country? You're gonna incarcerate them, take them away from their parents? What sort of resources are gonna be given to these families that are coming from the rural side, they're also coming from being dispossessed from the rural side, being forced to migrate to these capitals where they're encountering this violence. Um, there's been so many moments uh, the Convergence Against Continuism is a movement on the ground trying to, trying to call for another election, um, seeing that the problem of this is Juan Orlando in power being unable to improve the conditions and really answer to the demands or needs of these people, right? Uh, minimum wage that doesn't equip, equal less than $2 a day, where a country, the World Bank said this in 2016, more than 60% of the population lives in poverty, but more than 38% of that population lives in extreme poverty. This is modern day Honduras, an ally of the United States, someone that, where the United States didn't hesitate to recognize this legitimate government, where they continue giving $18 million and more to the Honduran military, or less than 90% of the human rights violations they commit are not investigated, where even their own generals have been complicit in drug trafficking. Um, so it's really, really um, disheartening. Um, talking about imperialism, I just want to emphasize the Socialist Workers' Party in Honduras is um, I encourage you all to do a little bit of research. They're really providing a framework for this anti-imperialist struggle within the country. Honduras has been dominated by traditional parties, um, and this is a way to really get out of that um, 
poly classes structure, right, that has really never been in favor of the poor in Honduras, that has never really been in favor of advancing labor rights for the indigenous communities that are being dispossessed, such as the Lenca, the Garifuna on the coast, such as the workers, the taxi drivers that have to face outrageous prices in oil, right? And I know I'm, uh, my time is up. Um, <laughs> I just want to emphasize one more last thing. Recently, the day after Thanksgiving, the president, the Honduran dictator, was arrested in Miami in charges of inspiring to import cocaine. This is the same brother who was accused of one of the largest cartels in, New York, uh, in Honduras, who's now in accord with the DEA, with the DEA who singled him as um, accepting a bribe of $250,000. So the brother of the current Honduran dictator is in power. The ex-president's son is in power that was supported by the U.S. for cocaine charging. So what Honduras really is and what these people are fleeing are U.S. foreign policy that is upholding a narco regime in Central America. Thank you. There's so much to say, um, and I'm not going to take too long to talk in depth about Yemen, but to sort of um, just give you guys some kind of, uh, a lot of the imagery that kind of evoked why I ended up going down to Tijuana um, in December and then um, last weekend, and sort of, uh, yes, what brought me down to the border, even though I know nothing. It was my first time in Mexico. I know nothing about the politics in Central America, but um, I know a lot more now. And um, it's the same story, pretty much. Um, uh, it's just all these places where people are facing dispossession, like extreme violence, are you know uh, places that are of geopolitical value, um, where their resources are valuable, um, the land is valuable, um, the um, the nearby um, countries are valuable, um, except their people, which are very disposable. Um, and Yemeni people have been disposable for a very long time. <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone knows where Yemen is or anything about Yemen. Um, it's south of Saudi Arabia. It is west of Oman. Um, and, uh, and it's always kind of been portrayed in history books and anything that I've kind of encountered in school learning about Yemen as a failed state. Um, and it's a place that needs constant intervention, it needs constant kind of um, policing and organizing and whatever from the outside um, because, you know, they're tribal environment and so forth. Uh, and so when I was planning to return to Yemen to do my field work, I could not because March 2015, the, not just Saudi Arabia, but 10 countries decided that they were going to um, try to uh, put back the president that the rebel like that the rebellion had kind of ousted. Um, the very kind of president that those ten countries intervened in the first place post Arab Spring. So what happened is that Yemeni like some a lot um, Yemeni people basically found themselves in an open air prison as and you can think about open air prisons all over the world um, anywhere from Gaza to you know Central America as we hear. Um, so Oman closed its borders, Saudi um, closed its borders, and um, Yemen was then placed on the U.S. ban. But not only just that, but so Yemeni people could, 
you could go to Jordan, you can go to Egypt, and you can go to Malaysia. You can go to a, a bunch of Arab countries um, without a visa. Um, but as I was traveling to Jordan to kind of try to reconnect with Yemeni migrants and refugees, um, I discovered that Yemeni people were also banned from moving. So the port in the south is bombed. Um, people cannot move, and essentially they were just like left to kind of um, pretty much just like may, like remain in Yemen, and also, and this is how the kind of what contributed to the current famine um, that's uh, affecting about 17 million people. So what's interesting is I found myself in Jordan and I was asking a lot of people like, how did you end up here? Why can't you return? And basically um, they said that, and there was no images of this, but that as soon as the, um, the bombing campaign started in, the Mar in March 2015, um, a lot of Yemeni people fled to the northern border and they camped out. Just like now you see the caravan. Like there were like actual caravans that went to the north. And what happened is that they just were there, and they were stuck there for like months. And because they had no resources, no water, I mean, this is like a desert, like the northern um, Yemen Saudi border is just desert. Um, they were like, people got sick, and they just had nowhere to go, so they went back, back, returning to the north where the bombings continued. So when I heard, when I was look, kind of reading the news, um, in like, Follow, uh, leading up to the moment I went to Tijuana, um, I hear about like people that um, caravan migrants that are like raging the U.S. border and they're trying to um, these people are violent and they're trying to like, kind of um, uh, charge the border and try to get into the U.S. and some of them are violent, some of them are fleeing violence. So how do we know whether they're asylees or migrants or criminals? So this like criminalization of the migrant is not something that started in the Mexico-US border, but it's something that has kind of already been colored all over the world because these places have extreme violence. So who are these people and can you trust them? And will they bring their violence with them? Um, and so one of my intentions, like one of the intentions of going down there is just simply to observe, simply to bear witness, simply to recognize that they have, a, they, these people have a right to move. These people have a right to pass through borders. These people have a right to speak to their plight. Um, that was like one of the reasons. And then I was able to, uh, some of my friends were able to plug me in with um, just some of the clinical and uh, medical, um, the legal and uh, medical clinics. But one of my, like one of the intentions was simply to go down there to recognize that this is not an isolated event. This is not just something happening um, to Central Americans or, um, um, yeah. And so, uh, so it was very much interesting. And one of the things that I had kind of forgotten a lot of this field work that I haven't gotten a chance to return to um, that I did in Jordan, I had kind of forgotten it as I'm like, um, I'm writing my dissertation. And then when we first got to Tijuana, we went to the first shelter in Benito Juarez. And it was raining, and the conditions were just, I mean, it was, they were very, very terrible. And these people like had very access to water, and all their belongings had kind of been damaged by the rain. But what was so interesting and um, like very symbolic, there were these armored trucks near the wall I mean, the wall itself is already just very kind of prominent and it's um, kind of 
screams like you this is you know this is not to be trespassed but these armored trucks were just like there placed like near the wall so that there is, seems to be this like illegality of trying to seek like aid or trying to seek um, asylum. And so when um, I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> I didn't try to speak Spanish, but when some of um, my colleagues kindly would speak to people and they would speak to them of, okay, you guys have collectively kind of pushed yourself through multiple orders, why stop now? And they said, oh, it's illegal. Like, seeking asylum is illegal. And I was like, of course, of course you would think that because there's these armored trucks, there is this wall, there is like something very powerful about these images. There's something very powerful of the discourse that gets circulated in these spaces that makes movement illegal. And that just made me like, just very, um, and it brought back all these images that I, these images that were kind of evoked by the migrants and the refugees that I worked with in Jordan about you know the fact that they could no longer go to Jordan or they could no longer go to Egypt. They can only go to Malaysia. Love the Malaysians. Um, um, uh, it's the only solid like solidarity group with Yemeni people. But there is something about these images that stop people, like kind of like um, deter like movements and solidarity and kind of then reduce like a collective struggle to an individualized struggle. As much as I would love to say yes, everyone should have asylum, it's but it's still like, you know, reducing collective violence to like individual security and then it kind of perpetuates further the need for further individual security by the criminalization of these people who are seeking a place um, that is elsewhere, um, a place that uh, they are very much deserving. And that's all I really wanted to say and to just kind of provoke um, some of us to think about what it is that we're requesting of people and what kind of narrativity are we um, kind of forcing out of people who are just seeking movement. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. My name is Pierre Labossière, and I'm with the Haiti Action Committee and also the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. Uh, I want to thank AWAC for organizing this and also each and every one of you for being here because this is what resisting imperialism is. It's a great show of solidarity with the struggle of people all over the world. And I love the title, Resisting Imperialism Beyond, I know it says Beyond Border, beyond the border, but I'd like to say beyond borders. Because this international refugee crisis, creating refugees, it's directly because of a class struggle of the haves against the have-nots. Or as we can call it, imperialism, imperialistic wars against people to plunder their resources, to prevent them from having a, a access to decision-making as to how their future is going to be, to exploit their labor, to take their underground minerals and their resources. And so people are saying no to this, and they are waging war on our people all over the world. You don't hear too much about Haiti. Why? Because they are trying to hide what the United Nations occupation and the US, France, Canada, the European Union through the United Nations, 
how they are occupying Haiti and are killing the Haitian people. And what I'm saying here, I'm sure it pertains to Yemen, to, Hond to Honduras, to El Salvador, to different countries, the Philippines. Um, as I was thinking earlier, I'm sorry for going fast, I should slow down. <laughs> as I was looking at the wall, I'm thinking of our brothers and sisters in Palestine, and as you mentioned, the image of the wall, what it conveys. And so when people in Palestine are going against that wall, when people are going outside to the border and challenging this building of the wall, this unites us in our common, in our universal resistance against imperialism. Just to bring you a little bit up to date about Haiti, Haitians have been and I know they, they, call, uh, they call us a ba basket case. They call Yemen a failed state, Honduras a failed state, and every place a failed state. But it's curious that if we are such failures, why are all these rich people interested in coming to our land? Why are all multinational corporations coming to our lands if we are such failures? There is something there. Whenever you see someone dumpster diving, you know there is something valuable. <laughs> and that's what's going on. So in the case of Haiti, the massive immigration out of Haiti first started occurring following the United States invasion of Haiti in 1915. And it was a land grab. They were expropriating the Haitian peasantry, taking over their lands, kicking them out, working with a lucky Haitian government or lucky Haitian governments to do that. And when the Haitian people rebelled and fought back to get their lands back, then that's when the US came in with its armies in support of the local oligarchy, in support of the local ruling class, in order to destroy that resistance. As a result, people were forced into, people fought. Over 20,000 Haitians were murdered by the US Marines in that long war of resistance by the Haitian peasants. And so many of them had to flee, many of the survivors. They went to the Dominican Republic, they went to Cuba, where gladly, they didn't just go there, they were recruited. It's like, okay, you lost your land, now what you gonna do? The Marines are after you, what you gonna do? Well, I'll give you a chance to escape. We need cheap labor, we need your work. Come work in our sugarcane plantations. That's the dynamics, you see? Following that, we had Papa Doug Duvalier, a dictator, put in power by the United States. He and his son over a 29-year period are estimated to have killed over 30,000, some people say as much as 50, as many as 50,000 of our brothers and sisters were murdered. That led to a massive wave of Haitians fleeing Haiti. And so you had people dying on the seas. People were dying on the beaches in Florida. Many of you are too young to remember those days, but many of us do remember those images. And then what happened? People in their resistance, the resistance against imperialism continued and people were uh, successfully were able to elect overthrow first overthrow Baby Dog Duvalier 
Then they elected a priest, Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide, to be the president of Haiti. And he started implementing, just like Manuel Zelaya in Honduras, he started implementing a people's agenda. That meant what? It meant doubling the minimum wage for people. Disbanding the Haitian military to take that money and build hospitals and schools for people. Subsidizing schools, making schools cheaper so that the poor can go to school. Building schools, doubling the number of schools that existed in the country, and so many other things. For the sake of time, I'm going to move very fast. So what happened? Many of the Haitians who were fleeing Haiti, they were taken to, many of you heard of, you know about Guantanamo, but how many of you remember that's where they were putting, that was the concentration camp where they put many of the Haitian refugees. They were in jail in Guantanamo. Conditions were so horrific that people went on a hunger strike. And resisting imperialism meant that many of you, some of you were there fighting against it. Some of you participated in sympathy hunger strikes. People chained themselves in front of the White House, resisting it. And most importantly, educating members of our communities here in the US and abroad as to why people were fleeing the conditions in Haiti. See, that education is very important because we, people who are fleeing, refugees, they don't want pity, they want solidarity. The only way you can be in solidarity with people is when you understand that their struggle is connected to your struggle. And it's important, and I am a union member, and I was very active with the ILWU on Local 6, so I used to be the assistant, one of the assistant chief stewards. And I used to tell my brothers and sisters in the union that when these companies, we need to stand up against the maquiladoras, because when these companies, these factories are shutting down their doors here and moving to a place like Haiti, it's not because they love the sunshine or the mango trees and they love the, the music or the calypso and what have you. It's because they are looking for a way to exploit our labor. So it's in your best interest because they are creating unemployment here, moving the businesses to Haiti where they can get away with not paying an adequate minimum wage, they can get away with not um, bypassing environmental laws, the labor codes, and they invest in the Haitian military, which is killing people, union organizers, when people are standing up for their rights. This is the nature. The more we can um, express or share or translate the pains of our brothers and sisters, whether it's in Creole, Spanish, or some other language in, in Arabic, to people here in the US so they can understand that it's one struggle. And when they get uh, some people in Haiti, that means, you know, let me do a little aside there. Many of you know about NAFTA. How many of you know that it was first tried in Haiti or in the Caribbean as part of the Caribbean Basin Initiative, initiated by Ronald Reagan? Once he saw that it was successfully being implemented, and I could go further to, to Chile after the killing of Allende, then they started implementing it here and, oh, and in the Americas. 
So finally, to close, I will let you know that Father Aristide, President Aristide, was re-elected again in Haiti. See, the, the thing with people is that they don't stop fighting. People resist. And so when our solidarity connected with the struggle of people in Haiti brought back President Aristide, the USA, they don't want him to be president. People said, forget what you were saying. We are going to re-elect re that guy. And they re-elected him. And this time, the US came, just like in Honduras. They kidnapped him. And they killed over 10,000 people. That was in 2004. Since then, the United Nations has been occupying Haiti. Economic conditions have been worse, the worst than they have ever been. Democratic rights completely non-existent. Massacres are taking place all the time in Haiti, in different communities, in different places. They are reinstituting the Haitian military. They are reconstituting the Tonton Makuts. They call them similar, same as in Honduras. You have a lot of drug, drug cartels, organizations, or gangs. But for us Haitians, we've been through it before. We call them the new Tonton Makuts. Because you see, when they say gang, it, may, it, it, con it conveys to people that maybe these guys are not connected with the government, you see? And you think that, oh, there's some dogs on the street and they have weapons and they're causing mischief. That's not the real picture. These are death squads set up as para, they are paramilitary organizations connected with the security forces of the police under the direct order, as in the case of Haiti, of the national palace of the president in Haiti. And they are out there killing poor people. They are out there killing people, creating a lot of terror tactics to prevent people from standing up for their rights. That's what's going on. So part of the caravan, why I feel part of it, and I'm going to wrap up on this, is that Many of the Haitians, after the coup, after the UN put in cholera in Haiti, brought cholera, over another 10,000 people killed. Some people say now it's closer to 20,000 killed by the cholera epidemic. Many had to flee. Again, they went to Brazil. Brazil recruited them. We are talking post-earthquake now, 2011 because Brazil was trying to undermine the unions in Brazil and they needed cheap labor in order to build the, the Olympic village. Once their labor was used, they were exploited, then they bought them, they, then they kicked them out, you see? And that's the massive wave of thousands of Haitians who went through 11 countries and ended up in, on the Tijuana border. So that's what's going on. Chile, in one year, over 100,000 of our young people went to Chile, where their labor, again, was exploited. In Argentina, you name it. Everybody's using the misery, the imposition of the, of the right-wing death squads, the right-wing regime on Haiti to plunder the resources and then to use the people as cheap labor. So I want to stop right here because I could go on and on. Thank you, I see the sign. <laughs> How do we deal with this situation? We have to work on several fronts. One is to support our brothers and sisters who are fleeing across the border in our gestures in, in solidarity, effective solidarity. 
But two, highlighting, see, I have this argument with a lot of my friends, well, we don't want to deal with politics. I said, how can you say that? These are refugees. It's political. You know, it's political. We have to connect it and tell people in this country what truly is going on. Otherwise, you are not going to get that kind of response or united front against the evil of imperialism that is destroying us abroad and here. So that's, I'll, I'll stop right there. And if you have any question about the work that we do as the Haiti Action Committee and the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund, I will share, gladly share that with you. So we're coming to the end of the program. Thank you so much for listening in. Again, this was a video from uh, AROC Arab Resource and Organizing Center. And this was an event that happened on January 17th, Resisting Imperialism, Voices from the Migrant Caravan. Ran out of time. There's a lot to get to. Uh, but I also thought it was really important to share that event and hear all those speakers. I learned a lot from listening to that. There's a few headlines. If you would like to learn more, check out a few things that are happening. Didn't quite get to. First of all, the IWW building in Portland was attacked by Proud Boys recently. You can check out more if you follow the Twitter handle at Portland IWW. Also, unfortunately, Japan has upheld a law demanding sterilization for trans people. That's pretty fucked up. You can find that at Out Magazine. Uh, John Willis, who is an openly gay congressman in Brazil, says he has received death threats and that he has left the country and given up his third term in office because he fears for his life. Also fucked up. That's from NPR. Um, and also there's an article in The Guardian about how a California officer protected neo-Nazis and targeted their victims. It's really informative. Check that out. Also, I'll end on two positive stories, I guess. Um, a prison strike in Minnesota actually got results. And oftentimes folks in prison go on strike to demand better conditions. And there's an, uh, an article in theappeal.org that has that story. It's from Minnesota. And finally, uh, uh, Birmingham Civil Rights Institute has reaffirmed its award for Angela Davis, thank goodness. And there's an interview at Democracy Now!, so you can check that out. Please do stay tuned. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Global Val and Diamond Dave. And lots of folks come in. Listen, thanks so much for listening in. If you'd like to support the show, check out patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. And we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody.